On today's episode, we are going to talk about designing with biology. I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab, a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Our guest is Dr. Ritu Raman. She is an assistant professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. Ritu's lab is centered on engineering adaptive materials for applications in medicine and machines. Professor Raman has received several recognitions for scientific innovation, including being named a Kavli Fellow and a Ford Fellow by the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering and Medicine, an Army Young Investigator by the U.S. Department of Defense, and L'Oreal USA for Women in Science Fellow. Ritu has been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 and MIT Technology Review 35 Innovators Under 35 list and is the author of the MIT Press book, Biofabrication. She is passionate about increasing diversity in STEM and has championed many initiatives to empower women in science. She received her Bachelor's of Science from Cornell University and her PhD as an NSF Fellow at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Before you jump into our conversation, I want to remind you to visit our website, designlabpod.com. There you can find show notes from each week, learn more about the guests, get related links to the content, and subscribe to our newsletter. Each week, our producer, Rob Pugisi, will email you show notes and links whenever a new episode drops. And reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U, on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. We love it when we hear from our listening audience, and we love it even more when you rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We have a five-star rating on both of those listening platforms. Thank you. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please give us a review, follow us, tell someone about the podcast. Now, my conversation with Professor Ritu Raman. Professor Ritu Raman, welcome to Design Lab. I am thrilled that you can make it on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really looking forward to the conversation. I love your book, Biofabrication, and... In the opening part of your book, you talk about when you first realized you were a machine. <laughs> can, you, can you tell us about that experience? Yeah. And I, I know why you're asking about the story, because I think it's a particularly ridiculous one. But you know, I think my first kind of realization that humans and other biological creatures can be thought of as machines happened when I was an undergrad at Cornell. And you know, I was an international student, so I was having a lot of trouble finding, you know, internships and other things I was eligible for. And the only job I could get was an unpaid internship in a biology lab where they were studying the role that alcohol plays on skeletal muscle. And so they knew from previous observations that, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you drink a lot of alcohol, your skeletal muscle degenerates over time. And of course, a lot of us know that if you exercise a lot, you get stronger and your muscle builds. And so they're like, what if, you know, you drink a lot and you exercise a lot? Could that essentially balance each other out? And the way they were testing that was on rats by giving them a very high alcohol diet and putting them on treadmills and having them sort of run their little rat feet over time and measure the outcome of that. And my job was to do that, was to just feed the rats every day, exercise them on their tiny treadmills every day, give them motivational speeches, though I'm not sure that was helpful. (laughs) And kind of my takeaway from that experience, spending many, many hours alone with a bunch of rats in a basement, 
was seeing that those rats were sort of dynamically adapting to their environment, to the food they were consuming, to the exercise they were doing. And of course, I knew that we're all doing that in our own lives as well. But it really clicked for me there because in my classes and my other things that I was doing at Cornell, I was working with a lot of machines and robots as a mechanical engineering student and was realizing that none of the things that I was working with in class could dynamically respond to their surroundings in the same way. And so it just got me really excited about thinking about everything living as a machine, but a machine that can adapt to its surroundings because it's made out of biological materials. I had the same experience, just like going into medicine and thinking of the human body as like the most amazing machine. And I'm just like curious, like why, you know, why do, I think a lot of us don't think about our bodies as machines. And I've done like a lot of different types of like sports activities from like surfing and weightlifting and rock climbing and mountain biking. And every time I dive into one of these activities over a couple of years, my body just changes. Like the, mm-hmm. my muscles get different. You know, they bulk up in some areas, they get leaner in other areas. My cardiovascular rate changes, my lung physiology changes. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Depending upon the sport and the environment of the situation that changes my physical body. Can you tell us about what biofabrication is and what inspired you to write your book, Biofabrication? Yeah. I mean, I think picking up on that last point that you just mentioned, one of the reasons why I think a lot of us have difficulty digesting that human bodies are machines is that we're used to think of machines as something where we know all the parts, we know how they fit together, we know what each part is doing, how they talk to each other, and how they're producing some defined functional outcome at the end of the day. And the reason we don't think of bodies in that way is because we don't know, right? We kind of know, Mm -hmm. oh, there's cells, there's DNA, maybe they're communicating electrically, maybe this is happening. But the fact of the matter is there are billions of different types of cells, they have unique functions, it's very hard to interrogate how they're talking to each other. And sometimes they have these really unpredictable outcomes where all these cells are talking to each other in ways that we can't predict because there are just so many of them and they're all constantly adapting. And so that is really kind of the underlying principle of biofabrication is thinking about now that we have kind of enough of an understanding of a biology to be able to look at individual cells and groups of cells. So how they're Mm -hmm. adapting on their own, how they're talking to each other. And we also have advancements in engineering where we know how to grow living cells in the lab, we know how to assemble them into 3D tissues, we can start asking and answering some of these questions about how cells can work together as a machine and how we can build with living cells to create machines that produce functional outcomes. And that's really just what biofabrication is. It's just building with living cells. Mm. So you are a designer, but you design with biological materials. Can you talk about some of these materials that you use? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, design is really the best way to describe it. One of the advantages that designers who work with more traditional materials, say like wood, metal, glass have, is that we have hundreds, thousands of years working with these sorts of materials, right? And we know, oh, if I apply a certain amount of force, the wood is going to deform this much, or the glass is going to break in that way if I cut it in a certain way. So we kind of have an understanding of what we can do to manipulate these materials to get a desired outcome. We don't have that so much for biology because Mm -hmm. we're still learning as we're going. 
And so a lot of what we're doing, at least, you know, there's design at many scales when it comes to biofabrication. You could be working with proteins or DNA. You could be working with cells. You could be working with tissues. I tend to work a little bit more with cells and tissues. So cells are kind of on the order of few microns, so millionth mm -hmm. of a meter up to maybe millimeter, centimeter scale, the larger you go into the tissue and organ domain. So we work there and we're kind of learning as we're growing. So we say, okay, well, let me look at how something is built in biology and in a natural system, how muscle looks, for example. And then I can try to put together different sorts of muscle cells and try to create something that looks like the body. And in doing that, I might learn a little bit more about that process, but I might also tweak it in a way that it acts different than it does in its native system. And so then I'm kind of a dynamically adapting my design rules as I'm building. It's a very, very adaptive process. Now, you are a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. Is that the normal route to design with biology? Because I would think of like maybe is it better to have be like a cell biologist versus a mechanical engineer? What's the advantages and disadvantages of your training and background for the type of work that you do and the type of research that you do? You're giving me a lot of flashbacks to my faculty interviews now because <laughs> it's honestly, it's a great question, right? Because when you're working in this sort of emerging field that is kind of at the intersection of biology, engineering, robotics, a lot of different stuff going on. And really, you could approach it from any of these perspectives and any of these training sets. And you would have some of the information and not all of the information. So I actually applied to be faculty in a variety of different departments that would kind of highlight different aspects of this work. I ended up picking mechanical engineering for many reasons. One of the main reasons is that's what my training is in. I know how mechanical engineers think and design and build, and I just want to add biological materials to the types of materials that they design and build with. But the other thing that's really cool about mechanical engineering is that it's one of the oldest disciplines, right? And so it's very broad. It can apply to health, it can apply to robotics, it can apply to energy. So I figured that way, I'm giving myself kind of the most flexibility in the sorts of problems we could address in the future, while still giving myself a place where we can ask really fundamental questions about how to build with biology. Mm. Tell us about the research that you do in your lab. You are designing muscle. Is that right? Yeah. So the overall goal of my lab is to, once again, think about how cells talk to each other when they're in a group and the ways in which they can communicate mechanically, chemically, and electrically to produce some really, really interesting functional outcomes. The specific type of tissue that we're focused on right now is skeletal muscle as well as the nerves that control skeletal muscle. And the reason this is exciting to me is because I think you know, movement is just something that is so obvious in nature and so exciting and so fundamental to our lives and the way we navigate our world. And voluntary motion in our bodies and many biological creatures is powered by skeletal muscle and controlled by motor neurons and the motor control system. And so what we're trying to do in my lab is build little tiny versions of the biological motor control system. So little tissues that contain muscle cells and nerve cells, and that can move and generate force and produce motion. And our goal is to basically use these not only as model systems to understand how our bodies work when they're healthy, how they're hurt when they're diseased, and how we can help cure diseases that impact mobility, but also think about how we could design robots that use these sort of living biological tissues to generate force and produce some sort of interesting functional outcome. Wait, wait, did you say 
robots like robots are going to have skeletal muscle on them in the future Yeah, yeah. Well, they already do, um, but just in our lab. Um, yeah, but that's the goal. I mean, really, muscle is an actuator. An actuator is something that converts, you know, some form of energy, chemical energy, electrical energy into another form, mechanical energy or force. And so skeletal muscle is just basically turning a voltage input from a motor neuron into contraction or getting smaller and generating a force. And so we can essentially use muscle as an actuator in a robot just the same way we would use any other kind of system that we're traditionally used to working with. That is amazing. I heard in a podcast that about superheroes that you're kind of like into superheroes. Do you have a favorite superheroes and why are you into superheroes? Yeah, well, maybe I'll start with the second question. I think the reason that I find superheroes and those kinds of stories very fascinating and really any kind of science fiction story fascinating is that, you know, when you think about, oh, let me have an ethical discussion about the kind of work I'm doing in the lab. That sounds like it's going to be really tedious and boring and something that you have to do because somebody's making you do it. But if you said instead, let me think through some interesting potential consequences, some far-reaching consequences of the work I'm doing, then that has produced some of the greatest, most engaging art of our generation, right? Like mm. huge sci-fi movies and superhero movies, because each of those is just diving into asking the question. So, for example, with Captain America, we might be asking the question, what happens when we give somebody incredible strength. Like one, how might we do that? What might the consequences be on that person? What might consequences be in on society? And then what happens when that technology propagates? So that's a really interesting way to think yeah. about the questions that we're working on in the lab. I don't know if I have a favorite superhero, but I would say, I mean, obviously Captain America, he's pretty great. <laughs> he's very strong and I work on muscle, but I also really like the Flash because there's a tremendous amount of interesting biology when you think about how can he get muscle that can move that fast? Because if we actually try to move our muscles that quickly, we can't really get that fast, not even close. So he's basically mm -hmm. like a hummingbird, but in a human. And I want to know how that works and whether I could make something like that in the lab. I particularly like Wolverine because of just his amazing ability to heal, which I've just always been fascinated by that. I'm like, whoa, it's because the healing process to me is just so miraculous when I see patients with it looks like devastating injuries and their skin heals or bones heal. Like I'm like, this is incredible. So I've always been fascinated by that. And I like the science fiction because that's a sort of like speculative design and mm -hmm. thinking about what may happen like 10, 15, 20 years from now can inform our current work that we do. Can I read a quote from your book? Oh, please do. I'll try not to blush. Uh, you say, uh, mapping out the ethical landscape of building with biology requires asking deeper questions about the definition of life. That's pretty heavy. For those who haven't read your book, everyone should. Where does that come from? That realization actually, or that question came from a conversation that I had with a middle schooler once. So, you know, we have a lot of these outreach events at MIT, and I had the opportunity to present in front of a bunch of 10 and 12 year olds. And I gave them a talk on the kind of robots we were making. And the first question I got in the audience from a little girl, she raised her hand, and she said, oh, you know, just wondering if you're building something out of living materials, does that mean that it is alive? And that I mean, it just stunned me <laughs> as a question because it's actually an incredibly 
deep philosophical question, right? Like the cells themselves are living, but is the thing you are making a living being worthy of moral consideration with a consciousness? And when it's just a chunk of muscle, the answer is very obviously no. But I can imagine that when you integrate more and more cell types or more functionalities, you might start thinking about those kinds of questions. And so I think what helps is to think about a framework for what you mean when you say a living thing or what you mean when you say alive. So what that quote was trying to convey is maybe we'll never get to a a definition of life that everybody agrees with all the time. But if we can talk to a bunch of people, not only in science, but also outside of science, possibly through things like science fiction that in science communication mm-hmm. to help kind of engage people in these conversations, we can come up with a set of things that we agree, like all living things should be able to do these things. And then we'll know when we're working on something in the lab versus not how we should be treating that tissue or that robot. And in your book, you talk about how you know biofabrication is already impacting our everyday lives. You know, this technology is out there. And one example is engineered meat. For those who have not heard about that, can you talk about how that's done and how soon are we going to have like a steak at our uh, table when we go out to a restaurant? Yeah. I mean, if you think about meat and caveat that I mentioned in the book that I'm going to mention again here is that I'm vegetarian. So what do I know? But if you think about meat, it's essentially, I mean, it's it's dead tissue, right? So if you can build tissues with living cells, you can certainly kill it, and then you'll have meat. And the advantage of doing that is that then you can essentially just put together however many cells you need to make a certain piece of meat, rather than necessarily growing a whole animal and spending a ton of environmental resources, raising this over years, and then having a ton of waste as well. So there's been a lot of thought about whether it might be more efficient and more effective and perhaps more health conscious to be able to make meat with very defined properties by putting together muscle cells and proteins and other things to make tissues that have the same texture and feel and taste as meat because they are essentially made of the same materials. In terms of how quickly that might happen, It has already happened in some ways, right? So people have made it in the lab. People have consumed engineered meat. It's even been commercially available, I think, at a restaurant in Singapore offered it for about a year or two ago. Oh, really? Yeah. But one of the big things is that it's very hard to make billions of cells very quickly in a cost-efficient manner. And you also want to make sure that you want to be using not necessarily animal products to grow the cells and other things so that it might be appealing to vegetarian or vegan audiences that might be craving this sort of material. So there's some cost efficiency concerns, but I think those are very solvable problems. Something that we have learned throughout kind of industrialization is that once we know how to do something, we will probably figure out how to do it fast and how to do it cost effectively. So that's kind of the major technical hurdle that's being overcome right now. But I don't think it should be too, too far in the future where you start seeing approval of some of these sort of engineered meat items to eat in the U.S. and beyond. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing designer meat, but I am trying to eat less meat and eat more vegetables. So I'm not sure if I will actually eat it. And can we talk about bioprinting organs? Is that something that is far off? Is it near? And like, how is it done? And as a disclaimer, I'm on the medical advisory board for a company called 3D Systems and around regenerative medicine. So we've been taking a deep dive into this, but it's like hard for me to explain to people how it's done. So can you take us through 
what are the current approaches to making organs for transplantation and how far away are we from doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think it helps to start with just a general definition we can agree on on 3D printing. So obviously, we're all familiar with 2D printing on a piece of paper. Um, and 3D printing is essentially that, but just stacking many pieces of paper or whatever material you're making with on top of each other. So you could think about, you know, some approaches to 3D printing that's biological in nature, you essentially have a syringe that's going to be squirting out cells and little proteins into some sort of 2D pattern. And then it allows those cells to kind of solidify. And then on top of it, it'll pattern a second layer, allow that to solidify and build more and more things. So then you can make a really cool, complex 3D shape that's made out of cells and proteins. That's one kind of approach that's called extrusion-based bioprinting, but there's other kinds of printers, but they all really rely on the same philosophy, which is how do I build a 3D object layer by layer from the bottom up? Mm. And, you know, it's a really dynamically evolving field. Even since I started my PhD 10 years ago, the kinds of things we've been able to print, the very sensitive cell types, really, really large tissues, tissues that incorporate blood vessels, so that they can get even bigger. You know, all these things have evolved very rapidly over the years. So it's hard to put a timeline on things because even in the past 10 years since I started my PhD, the technologies have been evolving and improving very, very rapidly and very suddenly. Hmm. But I can share some of the major, you know, technical hurdles that we might be facing as a field. One of them is, again, the ability to get a lot of cells quickly and in some sort of cost-effective way. So yeah. if you think about something like an organ transplant, if you don't want the person's body to reject it, you probably need to make it from their own cells. So what you would need to do is harvest some cells from the patient, grow up a whole bunch of those kinds of cells, and then print them into some complex 3D shape very quickly, very cost-effectively. So that would be quite challenging. The other big challenge is that when you make tissues very big, they typically need a whole bunch of blood vessels and nerves and uh, other things to keep them active and to keep them integrated with the surrounding network in the body. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of features, you know, blood vessels, nerves, they're all so, so tiny. So you need to be able to pattern these very, very tiny features into potentially a pretty large organ that you're printing. And that can be a pretty hard manufacturing feat. Yeah. But, you know, I think there are a lot of really promising approaches in a bunch of different labs and companies around the world. So I'm pretty excited to see the first few trials of when we start doing this in a real medical application. Yeah, it's super cool technology. And I know we've been talking about creating organs for transportation for decades, but I feel like it's different now. Like it's like the advances in research make it a lot more tangible. So it's super, super exciting. You talk about organ on a chip in your book and how we could design pharmaceutical drugs better through this technology. What is organ on a chip? If we think about kind of the traditional way we design and test pharmaceutical drugs, right? Kind of the typical process is somebody might try something in a lab with certain types of cells on a Petri dish and they're like, oh, I think I have some insight that this one thing drives a disease. And if I made this kind of drug, it's changing that thing and maybe it will stop the disease. And then when it works in cells in a Petri dish, they're like, well, let's try it in an animal, typically like a mouse or something that's kind of similar to a human, more similar than you would imagine, and that is replicating that disease. You try your drug on it. You're like, yeah, that seems to work pretty well in this mouse. And then you go to humans and you're kind of go more and more humans. And 
unfortunately, what happens is that, you know, humans aren't mice and they aren't cells in a Petri dish. And so often there's this huge drop-off or failure rate that happens when you're translating to do clinical trials in human beings. So the idea of this organ-on-a-chip type systems is that if we could print very tiny miniature versions of tissues or organs that are made of human cells and are still representative in structure and function of some larger organ system in our body, so like a tiny clump of heart cells that might mimic some portion of our heart, then you have a really highly effective and high throughput way to test what's going on with that organ in healthy states and in disease states. So I could make a tiny model of muscle. I could make a big cut in it that mimics some sort of injury that I might face in my body and then try out a whole bunch of different therapies on it to see what works really well to help restore muscle function. And the hope is that not only will that potentially be a cheaper way of kind of assessing a lot of different therapies, but also potentially a more effective way, because if you're testing something on human cells that are in some sort of organ or tissue-like structure that mimics the human body, then maybe when you actually try it in a real human being, it's more likely to be effective. You explain that so well. I've tried to explain this to people and I'm just bumbling all the time. Do you have any other examples of how biofabrication can advance uh, human health? Stuff that's going on like right now or maybe that stuff around the corner? A really big focus of my work is not only thinking about how we can build with biological materials, systems or tissues that look like things we already have in nature. So it could be like meat, organs, all the things we've been discussing so far, but also thinking about how we can use biological materials to build new types of machines or systems that we haven't seen before that might still have an impact on human health. So one example of that is in robotics. A lot of different robots, especially robots that we use in a human health context, like surgical robots, for example, need to generate force and produce motion. They need to do these really complex, you know, suturing, tying things together, cutting things open. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in these sort of very high stress domains, right? So you kind of want to make the best possible robot that is most dynamically adaptive to its surroundings. And that also has the softness, the flexibility that a surgeon has so that you can best kind of mimic and provide the best quality mm -hmm. care to a patient. And currently, if you look a lot of surgical robotic tools and technologies, for example, they're metal and they're controlled by a surgeon, but they themselves are not necessarily doing a ton of computation or thinking or adaptation. Mm -hmm. And our goal is if we can integrate real living muscles, for example, into robots like that, we might be able to make things that work with surgeons better and can help provide a higher quality of care. So that's just one example, but I think there are many things we can think of of robots that help restore mobility or could help deliver a drug to the right location or take a less invasive biopsy. All of these mm. sort of things are things that we could do if we integrated biological materials with machines. I'm trying to figure out what does that look like? <laughs> can you can you describe like is it like metal surrounded by muscle? Does it look like a robot at all? Does it or does it look more like a human arm? That's a good question. I mean, I think the answer I have is that 
it can look like any of those things. And it really depends on who's building it, right? So uh -huh. one thing, probably the easiest or not necessarily easiest to implement, but the easiest thing to think of is like, I know how hands work and I know how dexterous they are. So let me first try building something like that. And usually, you know, when we think about Westworld or other kind of examples or imaginings of this, we're thinking, oh, there's some metal exoskeleton, maybe some fleshy components. You're mixing these together and you're making something that looks like a hand. That's one way that we have been imagining it for a long time. But part of what I'm hoping to do by doing this kind of research, by writing this book, is to get more people involved in this space because, you know, a hand is one way of doing the thing that we do. But there's yeah. probably a million other designs that could work just as well or even better. And I'm hoping that if we get more people building with biology, we can think of new sort of creative ways of addressing these problems. Yeah. Now, for those who are interested in this field, for people listening, what is the pathway to design with biology? Can you be like an architect, a designer? Do you have to be a mechanical engineer or a physician? Like who, who's going into this space? Because this is an emerging field and it's changing so rapidly. Well, I am a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT, so I'm contractually obligated to say everybody has to be a mechanical engineer. You should come to MIT. You should enroll in our programs. Okay. So that disclaimer aside, I think the really great thing about the era we're living in is that we're kind of at this place where biology is exploding and it's infiltrating and integrating with a whole bunch of different fields. So if you're really interested in biology, you could train in biology. But even if you trained in pretty much any kind of engineering or physical science or architecture, aspects of biology, it might be with mammalian cells or cells from mammals or plant cells or insect cells, all of these things will probably infiltrate into all those fields. And so it's really a question of keeping this idea in your mind, being open to new possibilities, being open to continuing learning throughout your life, and you will find a path to it. I hesitate to give young people the advice to sort of follow a very regimented path because I didn't do that. And I actually mm -hmm. think that that's what leads to the most interesting kinds of discoveries and outcomes. Yeah. Well, definitely read your book because it's such a great primer. And Oh, right. Thank you. Forget yeah. to plug that. Yeah, you should definitely read it. And the nice thing about the book is it is written for sort of high school biology level and above, because the last biology class that I took was actually in high school. So, you know, a lot of this is self-taught, and I'm hoping to kind of share that with folks. One cool fact about your book, your the illustrations I love. Who who did the illustrations? Oh, my mom did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> She'll appreciate that shout out. She is just a great artist and she's a chemical engineer, but you know, she was trained at a time where biology wasn't a part of the engineering curriculum as much. And so I have a lot of great conversations talking to her and my dad, who is a mechanical engineer, about kind of how these fields have evolved over time and talking to them in a way where not necessarily dumbing things down, but sharing kind of new ideas and disciplines and watching how they process that information. And with my mom, it comes with the side effect of she draws a lot to convey her thoughts. And I thought that she did an incredible job of kind of helping me convey those principles in the book. So cool. I love it. Reaching my last question, if a listener were to visit you, where would you take them out to eat? So as I mentioned, I'm vegetarian, so I'll give an option, <laughs> a place that has a lot of vegetarian options, but also other things. Possibly my favorite restaurant in the greater Boston area is called Sofra. It's in Watertown. And 
they it's a sort of Mediterranean place. And the thing I really like about it is the food is amazing. There's not a ton of place to sit inside. So you kind of have to stand in line for a long time. You eat the food. It's great. They have a cherry dragon iced tea, which I love. But the best part about it is after you eat right across the street is Mount Auburn Cemetery, which is a really, really beautiful historic location. A lot of great Boston history, a lot of huge trees, and a lot of opportunities to get some exercise, work out your muscles, and uh, get rid of some of those those calories you pounded on at Sofra. So it's just a great experience and one of my favorite, favorite things to do with people when they come visit. Well, I'm going to go check it out next time in Boston. Thanks for that. And thanks for coming on the show and for teaching us about biofabrication. I love it. I love talking to you. Thank you. You can follow Ritu on Twitter at D-R-R-I-T-U-R-A-M-A-N and on Instagram at R-I-T-U dot R-A-M-A-N. Design Lab is produced by Rob Pugisi, editing by Fernando Cateros. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.